questions, questions, and even more questions. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Hey everybody, this week's episode is the second part in the series of patrons' questions that we started last week. To become a patron, you can go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the Patreon link to become a partner of the show. AskScienceMike.com is also where you can submit your questions and learn more about seeing Mike live when he's in your area. But for now, we got a show to do, so let's get it started. Gordon Hall asks, hi, Mike, just wondering if there's any correlation between spiral dynamics and politics. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, spiral dynamics, one of the things it's most effective at is describing interactions between political groups. It's very easy to imagine that the Democrats have a orange-green center of gravity and that the Republicans have a red-blue center of gravity in the parties. And that's why they have so much trouble talking to each other. They have fundamentally different ways of viewing the world. Josh and Becca say, I have been in deconstruction for about five years, but I often feel drawn back towards my conservative Christian upbringing. Years ago, I might have explained this as being convicted by the Holy Spirit to turn back to the truth. Now I see it as an unhealthy fear of eternal conscious torment put into me from an early age along with far too much certainty that the church has already figured everything out and I just needed to follow along. Still, there is a part of me that just can't let go of the fear that I used to be right and now I've gone astray. I feel in a position where I can't really go forward towards a new healthy spirituality nor back to my old form of belief that I see as seriously flawed in so many aspects. I just drift in the middle of deconstruction distracting myself from the cognitive dissonance. What might help? How do you let go of the past and the fear attached to it? You realize that you could be wrong now, but you could have been wrong then. This is the trouble with theologies that make exclusive claims about spiritual destinations. How do they justify that their position is superior to other positions? How do they know their holy book is the holy book? And how do they know that their interpretation of that holy book is superior to all the other competing interpretations? So what might help revel in the fact that you'll never know anything for sure, especially anything about theology or God or what happens when we die. And so what's left? To do your best. To build an ethic. To build a, a worldview that best allows you to help others. Why? Because you'd like to be helped. It's why I'm a Christian. Boiled down to its essence, this is a faith about loving God and loving and serving others. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And Jesus says to fail to do so is to 
wander through a burning trash dump where the worm never dies. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'd rather love God and serve others. Jordan McKay, do you prefer Coke or Pepsi? Uh, I'm from the Southeast. I prefer Coke, although I rarely drink it. I have started drinking again lately because I was stressed out from the move, and I've gained a lot of weight, so I'm going to stop doing that. Appleton says, you've mentioned your learning disabilities and that as a kid you had to develop coping strategies, specifically a poor short-term memory leading you to learn to commit things immediately to long-term memory. As a kid, I struggled with an auditory processing problem, but I believe that the coping strategies I developed helped me later excel as a musician and a music teacher. I've found in other areas the best teachers usually aren't those with natural talent, but people who had to consciously struggle and learn how to learn the given subject or skill. Though they were undiagnosed at the time, how would you now diagnose your learning disabilities as a kid? Can you describe the specific strategies you developed to cope? How would you teach these techniques to others to help them, for example, remember more of the things they read and research? Boy, your point is excellent. And uh, gosh, I don't know that I'm a good example. (laughs) These strategies are so early in my development. It's like saying, so how do you breathe? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, One tip, I um, close caption conversations and movies and anything I'm listening to. I have auditory processing problems. So I like, visualize words in the air, uh, either crawling ticker tape or literally closed captions popping up to help me use parts of my memory that are better. In terms of reading, how I remember so much, I avoid distraction. I get very focused. I have almost no notifications on on my phone, but the few that I do, I use do not disturb or airplane mode. And when I'm reading and researching, I don't do anything else. Emails closed. I don't let myself get distracted. It's probably as good as I can do today. Marie, uh, why do we get wandering itches and what causes them? In case you call them something different, a wandering itch is when you have an itch, scratch it, and immediately somewhere else starts to itch. Uh, I did itching on a really recent episode of Ask Science Mike, like the last five or six episodes. I think if you Google Science Mike itch, you'll get it first shot. Ryan Strait says, once had a Christian leader tell me that no animals besides humans have pain during childbirth, and that is proof of the fall. Haven't found any evidence to back this up. What do you think, Mike? Thanks. Yeah, that's not true. (laughs) Now, humans do have an especially painful childbirth because we have giant noggins. We just have huge heads because we have these big brains. So, you know, we probably have more pain than average, significantly more pain. Uh, but there's some pretty gnarly methods of, of birth and reproduction in the animal kingdom. So, no, I haven't found any evidence to back that up either. So, ask the person. Cite evidence. How do you know that? Let's see. Joel says, do you think time travel will ever be possible? Yes. And do you think that the fact that we haven't seen evidence of it yet, i.e. someone from the future, future traveling back to our present, makes it less likely? Time travel is possible. We do it all the time. We're doing it right now. We are traveling forward on the arrow of time. You can change the rate with which you travel through time by uh, getting into a very deep gravitational field or moving faster. 
and then you're traveling through time. Now, traveling backward in time? No, I don't know if that's possible. Probably not. There's a couple of plausible ideas in physics. Brian Greene explores one in his book, The Fabric of the Cosmos, but they have a small problem. You can't go back in time to before the time machine was invented. So I think time machine, time machine, that's a big stretch. Time travel is tough. Lots of energy required. Jason and Ashley say, hello, what is your favorite science about connecting with other people? Specifically, why do some people need to feel more connected than others to feel deeper meaning? Thanks, Ashley. We're social mammals. We're all gratified by connecting with other people. Some of us has been conditioned to experience that less. Some of us have um, different predispositions from our genetics that lead to different brain structure development where we find too much social interaction with too many people overwhelming to our sensory processing facilities. Um, so I think a lot of that comes down to the extroversion, introversion spectrum. Uh, and then our life experiences, especially how we form attachment relationships. Are we secure attach? Are we avoid attach? You know, all that matters. Joe, since you are a Christian and raising your children as Christians, how would you feel if they grew up and decided to marry someone of a different faith? What if your daughter had to convert to Islam, for example? Would that worry you or would you accept that if she was at peace with her decision? I would totally accept wherever my kids go spiritually, as long as it is not to an extremist fundamentalism, uh, because I think that tend tends to be bad for people, especially women. But no, if, if my daughter converted to Islam uh, and got married to a Muslim, uh, I'd celebrate at the wedding. Uh, Dave Simison says, the Roman Catholic Church has different levels of worship, Latria, which is adoration of God, and Dulia, which is the veneration of the saints. Mary gets her own bonus level called hyperdulia. Do you think our brains can differentiate between prayer oriented toward a triune God and venerating or asking for the intercession of a saint? Dave, I don't know. I haven't seen any, and I mean any, studies on that. I would assume... The benefits to your brain are very similar, though. Uh, Ty, I've been reading Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson, which has led me to do a little extracurricular research on him. I've watched several interviews in which Tyson is asked about the existence of an all-powerful, completely good God. His response is always that if God exists, he is either not all-powerful or not all-good. Tyson cites terrible things that happen in the world every day. His point being that an all-powerful, all-good God would not allow these things to happen. How do you respond to this? I have my own opinions, but I am curious about yours. Uh, how do I respond to that? Maybe we're anthropomorphizing God too much. Yeah, we're putting, we're making a sky God. I don't spend a lot of time debating Scott Man and the Sky Gods. It's not particularly interesting or compelling to me. God is the ground of being. God is the source of all. And God, I suppose, is all-powerful, but not like if we were a magician that could do whatever we wanted. God is from which all emanates. God is, is, is creative by nature. God creates a universe that continues to create. So I just think that's an old-fashioned argument. I think um, 
we shouldn't base our theology on 400-year-old physics, which is what Neil deGrasse Tyson is doing there. He's which is fu- it's totally understandable, right? That's the that's the dominant normative view of God in Western civilization is 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 based on really old physics. Uh, so I, I understand what's happening there, but I think if we process our theology through our physics, uh, we end up somewhere more like John Shelby Spong uh, or Spinoza or something like that, and then those questions become non sequiturs; they don't make sense. Mallory says, if human bird mutants existed, how large would their wings have to be to allow flight, assuming they had feathered wings like an eagle? Can't answer that off the top of my head, Mallory. I can tell you that one reason birds are able to fly is they have a fundamentally different physiology than humans. They have much lighter bones, for example. And I'm not sure how well that scales up to a human-sized animal. Uh, There were some relatively large flying animals in the time of the dinosaurs, but they did, you know, I don't know that their wings were feathered. I think I've heard arguments both ways from paleontologists. The wings would have to be very, very large. There'd have to be significant muscle mass. And we would probably be better gliders than flyers, but truly massive. I'm guessing, and this is guessing, this is not a mathematical answer. You know, a wingspan of 12 to 18 feet would be required with incredibly massive muscles and a completely different bone structure, which would make us somewhat brittle on the ground. PJ says, could quantum entanglement ever be used as a mean to communicate instantaneously across the universe? It seems like people are very fast to make this huge leap, but I don't see any suggestion as how it could ever be possible. Thanks, Mike. No, quantum entanglement does not allow information to travel faster than light as that violate, violates the laws of relativity. That's not what quantum entanglement does. That represents a fundamental misunderstanding of entanglement. Uh, for example, uh, when two particles are, are, are entangled, if you start close together and you take them further apart, two observers in different places can observe the particle and they'll see the same observation uh, but then they can only verify that via a traditional light speed communication. <laughs> light speed or less. So no, it doesn't, it doesn't transmit information. It's not how entanglement works. Uh, Conrad says, I heard an anecdote where the senior executives of a major corporation, sorry, can't remember which, all had only boys for children. You have two girls and I have one daughter. Where I'm at right now, being in such a position would not be compatible with my goals in life. And I think not yours either. Does or can the gender of your children influence your life slash career choices? Thanks, Mike. Great question. Uh, I don't have a good answer for you. I haven't seen any research on that. This That's the theme for this week's show. Great question. I, I haven't seen any research on that. <laughs> Andy says, hi, Mike. Can't wait to see you at the gathering in L.A. Love your work. And I watched the overview video by the Planetary Collective last weekend and was really moved by the views of Earth from space. Will you talk briefly about what's happening in my brain when I see these beautiful images and feel a deeper connection to the world as a whole 
Thanks, Mike. Andy. Um, awe. You're experiencing awe. Gosh, awe in the brain. It's going to be some ventral stradium activation. I'll call some limbic activation. What's the neuroanatomy of awe? I don't remember. Gosh, I, I read a book on this. Uh, Andrew Newberg, who wrote How God Changes Your Brain, did a book called How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. And when he talks about enlightenment, there's a big E enlightenment and a little E enlightenment. So a big E is like an incredible, you know, almost mystical experience, level experience. Uh, and then little E awe is like our everyday experiences of awe and wonder. And so he goes into great detail about uh, how that happens. And I can't remember any of it, but I love the book. So check out How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg. Uh, And sorry for that. This is what happens when I shoot from the hip. Okay, Brandon says, best response for learning about story and your method of communicating large ideas with narrative. Any quick tips? Uh, Okay, Don Miller's story brand framework is one of the best overviews I've ever seen on how to communicate with story and narrative. You can check out the story brand podcast on which I was a guest, uh, where we go into that a lot to do that. Okay. Aaron says, describe the perfect pizza, the one that is hot and in front of me. Uh, James Martin says, hi, Mike. I've recently heard several people on other podcasts take examples from neuroscience to make the claim that we don't have free will, split brain examples, cases of epilepsy, etc., and subsequently raised doubt about whether persons who have undergone certain neurological procedures should be held responsible for their actions. Do you think it's a bit extreme to ditch the concept of personal responsibility because some fringe cases in neuroscience Wouldn't it make a lot more sense to refine the concept of free will to allow a more nuanced conception of personal agency, i.e. compatibilism? Philosophers and psychologists have cast doubts on classical conceptions of free will for a very long time, but that does not mean that the only acceptable position left is some kind of hardcore determinism where people can't be held accountable for their actions. Thanks for making such a consistently great podcast. Can't wait to see you in, in Edinburgh. By the way, the church where you will be speaking is the first stop on the Harry Potter tour of Edinburgh. And J.K. Rowling wrote the first Harry Potter books in a cafe just up the road. James, wow, what a strong close. <laughs> I can't wait to check that out. Um, yeah, I think I think free will is overrated. I think we have agency. I think it's limited. I'm not interested in holding people accountable for their actions which is a concept I would call uh, retributive justice or punitive justice, where justice or punishment is the goal. Excuse me, or punishment or retribution is the goal of a justice system. I am all about rehabilitative justice. So how can we help people make better decisions and choices? How can we protect people from the actions of others? So if you have someone who, for whatever reason, whether free will exists or not, they, they violently attack people all the time, we have to take safeguards to prevent that from happening. And that may look a lot like incarceration for that person. But I think, yeah, I think in general, when I think of crime and punishment, I assume there's not free will and that we need to do a better job of helping people shape their agency into healthier choices for themselves 
and for society. And I think we see cultures and societies that do that well, especially in Northern Europe. And we see cultures that do that extremely poorly, like the United States. And the next question was, what are numbers? But James, you already got a question, so I'm not doing, I'm not doing doubles for anybody. But it's a funny question. Lewis says, at age 43, I finally stopped denying the impact that childhood sexual abuse had on me and started working on some kind of framework to make sense of it all. I'll share one detail relevant to my question. I'm male, and my abuser is female. I've read several blogs and realized that I needed to sort out the betrayal angle. I've also found the opinion, it seems to be supported by the data, that abused girls are more likely to be promiscuous as teenagers. Why would that be? What data do you have to extrapolate the likelihood of boys are in this regard? I don't have any data on that. I have seen studies that link abuse to promiscuity and abuse to cycles of abuse and perpetuation of abuse is because uh, sex is a powerful conditioning tool. Uh, there's very few states of neurological arousal so intense. And so the things that happen to us and that we do during sex tend to strongly influence our behavior because so many of the brain's reward systems are activated even in situations of abuse. So I'm sorry that happened to you, and I'm glad that you're finding a framework to make sense of it and to heal and to grow toward health. But this is a huge part of why sexual abuse occurs, is that it can be a self-reinforcing phenomenon. It's also a reason victims suffer so much, is uh, sexual abuse can create behaviors that aren't healthy for the individual over time, even if they're not um, perpetuating a cycle of abuse, allowing themselves to be used or victimized or engaging in a lot of sexual activity but not deriving pleasure or satisfaction from it. Uh, All those things are traps that victims get caught in as a result of sexual abuse. The female abuser of a male abusee is not unheard of. That's not something the media talks about a lot, especially because of our kind of patriarchal approach to sexuality. Um, If a girl is sexually abused, we tend to view that as a crime. If a young boy is sexually abused by an older woman, we tend to view that as a high five, right? But that's not a healthy or beneficial look at sexuality. Andrew says, hi, Mike. You've said many times that meditation has radically changed your spiritual practice. Could you share a little bit of how and why? I know a little bit about the science of meditation, but I'm interested in how it helps you feel closer to God. With the help of you and Michael, I've developed a pretty solid meditative practice that I think is valuable. But there are some times when I do it and I don't feel connected at all. I'd love your thoughts on this. Thanks so much for all you do. Okay, Andrew, um, meditation is different every time. You don't have to feel connected to God every time. The point is to be still, to be quiet, to be intentional, and to be aware. And then what happens in that space happens. Uh, Meditation is the thing that works over time. It's called a practice for a reason, not a session. The science completely reinforces that. So keep developing your practice. And whatever your intention is, that thing that you tell yourself you're doing this because, over time, 
we'll get closer. So if that is to feel close to God, if that's the intent, the seed you plant before your practice, just give it time. It'll bloom. Um, why does, you know, you said, could you share a little bit and why, how and why? Because as my practice is deepened, I sit in centering prayer and in time I find myself in the presence of God. And you say, what does that mean? I can't tell you. <laughs> it's just a thing that happens. I just sit calmly, quietly in the presence of God and God does the same with me. It's beautiful. And uh, it's a brain thing. Will asks, would love your train of thought when asked, does all information exist irrespective of human ego? What atmospheric conditions were like on Jupiter 21,712 years ago, say from the moment you read this, the molecular makeup of vapor from your most recent yawn, the cause of the second strongest gravitational wave event, etc. Does all information within the universe exist? Even if given modicum, is perpetually outside the reach of human consciousness. Man, the patrons are not messing around with with these questions. Uh, (laughs) I just hope this is palatable to the entire Ask Science Mike audience, at least in part. Yes, I think all information exists in the universe. I think it becomes knowledge as we're aware of it, but it is already information in physics. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Quincy says, as a space nerd and peacemaker, what are your personal thoughts on the entanglement between space exploration slash technology and military technology? Do you think there is a way we can continue to advance the space exploration aspect without advancing militarism? Does this problem exist in other countries with space programs? I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson is working on a book on this topic that is supposed to come out in the next year or so. It will be interesting to hear his thoughts. I'm actually more interested, Quincy, in his thoughts than in mine. There is an incredible link between militarism and space exploration today in every country I'm aware of. The technology that gets you to a space station or the moon is the same that delivers a warhead to another continent. There's no way around that. Some, In some ways, the peaceful exploration of space is saber-rattling. It's posturing. It's look what we can do. We could do it with a bomb too, right? Militarism is such a cultural value along with nationalism. I'm not sure how to decouple those at scale. Short of an over, an intentional reboot of the educational systems of every culture that's spacefaring. Man, these questions are really hard. Jonathan Scott, hey Mike, I've heard that we are supposed to closely pass Bernard's star in about 5 million years. What kind of impact will a close stellar pass have on our solar system? At the least, could we expect some type of gravitational impact to our orbit or the orbits of other bodies in our system? Thanks. Uh, Space is huge. So a close pass of a star is close in astronomical terms but still not close at all on the scale of a given solar system. It's very, 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 very rare that stars pass close enough to disturb the orbits of their planets. It's not unheard of. There's so many stars. It does happen. That's how, by the way, we get planets that are um, just wandering through space, not in a solar system. Some star flung them loose. 
But to my knowledge, Bernard's star will not get anywhere near close enough to our solar system to disturb the orbits of the planets around our sun. But I could be wrong. I didn't research that answer. Okay, Joe says I've been saving up several. Okay, but I'll do one. (laughs) So I'll do the first one. Is there a scientific reason why some people feel they were predestined for something? A career, a ministry, salvation, etc.? Absolutely, our brains are meaning-making machines. Your consciousness is less the boss of your brain and more the narrator. So there's all sorts of things that happen in your life experience and in your actions that didn't originate in the parts of the brain responsible for your consciousness, but your brain, your consciousness still takes credit for them <laughs> in your process of meaning-making. That's why we are wired to accept explanations for phenomena that include a purpose, including our own lives. Really, really good question. Andy says, I feel like I've heard a lot of your life-changing story, which I am happy about and appreciate, through the liturgist and this podcast. Is there more to find out in finding God in the waves? Oh, man, Andy. I have been asked that so many times. Honestly, I think the podcast really hurt the book more than it helped it. um, Because people think they've already heard everything about my story. And the fact is, in the first half of the book, I go into deeper detail about my story, my deconstruction, my experience than I have anywhere else. And in the second half of the book, I talk about rebuilding my faith in more specific detail and in, in wide swaths than I have anywhere else. Finding God in the Waves is not just a collection of material from the podcast. There's a, there's a huge part of the book that has never been mentioned on the air. The themes are different. Uh, it's a book-length work. So absolutely, there's more to find out in Finding God in the Waves, which the paperback edition comes out October 3rd in the United States. So if you want to get it really inexpensively, um, that will be an opportunity. Let's see. Almost done here, folks. Uh, Beth says, are there any positions of authority you think are automatically deserving of respect? I often hear, for example, people say that the office of the president inherently deserves to be respected regardless of who's serving in that role. Other examples commonly referenced in the church are pastors, church leaders, parents, and other figureheads. Should we automatically respect certain authority figures in life, or is it valid for our respect levels to vary depending on the behavior and character of people in those roles? The second one, I automatically respect everyone, not because of their position, but because they're a human being. But if people are abusive, dismissive, negligent, authoritarian, controlling, then I will lose respect for them. Uh, no, I don't think I don't think any office inherently gets respect. I think all people deserve respect until they show you that they don't. Megan says, if you can train your brain to have mystical experiences, does that ne- negate the idea of God directly revealing himself to you? No. No, it doesn't. Here's why. 
Oh, maybe it does. <laughs> maybe. I was about to, where I was going was to learn more about space. We've had to launch satellites into orbit, right? And the stars are already always there, but we couldn't see them until we did the work to get in a position to see what they had to say. But uh, the stars don't reveal themselves to us. The stars simply are, and we see them or not. And sometimes it takes more work to see them. So in like that view of God, where God is sort of a, a ground of being, then um, God is always there, and we either discover God's work or not. But in like a more personal way, in a relational way, relationships take work. Relationships take effort. If I'm across a continent from my wife and I don't call her and I never come home, she has no way to communicate with me, short of flying across the country and finding me. So no, I don't I don't think in either paradigm, either a personal God or a ground of being God, that the idea that you can do things to make yourself more aware of God and God's revelation, I don't think that negates God, no. Back to my original answer. Zach says, sometimes life throws you a situation that gives you the perfect science mic question. A few days ago, I opened the freezer and realized the grocery receipt had been accidentally placed on top of a frozen pizza. When I grabbed the paper, it barely felt cold, certainly less than I expected and less than the food I took out. I continued to leave the receipt in the freezer to see what would happen. Nothing did. Is this due to a lack of moisture in the receipt? Yes. Or how thin the paper is? Yes. Why won't my receipt freeze? Because it is already frozen. (laughs) Frozen matter is what? In a solid state. And all of the molecules in a piece of paper are frozen at room temperature. And in fact, in their current configuration, can't actually melt. They can only be combusted. If you heat a receipt enough, what will it do? It will burn. It won't melt. It'll never melt. So that's what's happening. Uh, There's no moisture, so you're not going to get ice crystals. And it's very thin, and it's an insulator. So it, it, it doesn't conduct thermal energy especially well. It's so thin, you pick it up, your, your fingers warm it very, very quickly. Yeah, a receipt is is never going to feel really... I guess if you dipped it in like liquid nitrogen then it would be quite cold. <laughs> uh, your fingers aren't thermometers, by the way. What your fingers measure is not temperature, but change in temperature, rate of thermal transmission. And the receipt just, is just not doing it for you. In absolute terms, it's the same temperature as the frozen pizza. It just doesn't feel as cold because you pick up the receipt. It doesn't transfer a lot of thermal energy away from your fingers. Uh, so that's the main thing. It's it's A, the receipt's already frozen, and B, Your fingers aren't thermometers. Katie Owen says, I'm a queer Christian, and my theology is affirming of queer identities. I am extremely confident in the truth of my stance on my identity, even so. Sometimes in conversations with people of a more fundamentalist perspective, I find myself doubting, what if they're right? What if I am really just reading what I want to read? What is happening in my brain when these doubts creep in? How can I participate in productive discussions about the church and LGBTQ persons without getting triggered and working through identity crisis all the time? Katie, you you might not have to. Why don't you just take the time 
to get secure in your identity with people who love you for a while and just just skip the advocacy to fundamentalists. Not forever. If you feel called to those conversations, have them. But first, get solidified in God's love for you. Get solidified in people of faith who accept you. That's what's going on. Your brain derives beliefs from social identity. Your social identity comes from people who you spend time with. So just spend a lot of time with affirming folks for a while. Get secure and then go back and have those conversations. I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think it's that simple. I think it's that simple. You've wrestled through this. I assume you come from a faith background where you once were not affirming. And so you've got a lot to work through there. And then as as this is still kind of fresh and new for your consciousness and your emotional systems, you're having conversations with people who speak to a place where you once felt social belonging and identity. And that's a powerful force in human belief and behavior. Yeah, spend time with affirming people. And you know what? Honestly, this is a powerful job for people like me. I'm straight. For me to talk about gender identity, to talk about sexual orientation, is an academic pursuit. So I don't, I don't, I don't carry the same uh, felt risk of social rejection, ostracization, of theological torment in these conversations. So it is much easier for me to have a conversation with a non-affirming Christian because I don't have the same amount of skin in the game. So let us allies do some of this work, right? It's not it's not uh, it's not queer Christians who are persecuting queer people. It's not. So uh, don't worry that the work won't get done. Take care of yourself. If you don't take care of yourself, you you can't help. You can't help if you don't take care of yourself. John says, I'm curious as someone who's a lot more connected to the rural South than I am, what you thought of the S-Town podcast if you listened to it. I thought it was masterful storytelling and incredibly compelling, but something about it doesn't sit quite right with me now that I've had some distance from it, but I can't fully articulate why. It felt a bit cavalier to me, I suppose. John, unfortunately, I have not heard the S-Town podcast, though many have told me it's excellent. Dev says, should be really quick one to answer. You mentioned before that you have a scientific method to fall asleep really quickly. I'd like to know how that works. Okay, I talked about that on a previous episode of Ask Science Mike. I don't remember which one. I think I talked about it once with Don Miller as well. It is not a quick answer. It is not a quick method. It basically comes down to good sleep hygiene and a consistent meditative practice. Uh, Those are the two components, making good decisions about what you do in the hours before you go to bed, going to bed at a really consistent time, keeping the space that you sleep in dark, um, quiet, uh, not using your bed for anything other than sleep or sex, no media consumption, no phone, no TV. None of that should happen because you're conditioning yourself to be active instead of you're basically training yourself, sleep training. Uh, and then, um, I do a breath meditation. I listen to myself breathe and I, I really, I go to sleep in 25 seconds. If it, if I go to sleep slowly, 
I go to sleep in 25 seconds. And it, But this is not something that you can figure out in two weeks or two months, maybe two years. Good habits over and over and over. Amanda says, what are your thoughts on prophecy in the Bible? For example, Isaiah 53 talks of a suffering servant whom many refer to as a prophecy of Christ. I have some family members who base their faith on Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in the New Testament, arguing that because these prophecies were fulfilled in the Bible, it must be true. Do you think Old Testament writers were actually being prophetic? Or do you think this is something we look back on now and see Christ in it? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks for all you do. I think there's no question, Amanda, that many Old Testament writers were referring to prophecies about the Messiah. I don't think they were thinking of Jesus in particular. I think the thing with prophecies, it's very easily to proof text someone into prophecy. If I made some prophecy about sea levels rising, and I was ambiguous enough about the time frame, uh, or I say a child would come from a land where the seas were rising, what does that mean? At what age? The day they were born? The first five years of life? Why the seas rise? Was it permanent? Was it storm surge from a hurricane? See what I mean? The lack of specificity in prophecy is what makes them so compelling because the meaning-making machinery of human brains finds the parts of a narrative that fits a prophecy and uh, becomes authoritative. So yeah, I'm not a big prophecy guy. <laughs> You might get that from my answer. If that's important to their faith, though, like this is not a worthwhile debate having. It's just not a worthwhile debate to have, in my opinion. Kevin says, I'd love to hear the best argument you know of for the actual existence of the soul and maybe hear whether you believe in one or not. What is a good reason to actually believe we go on after death? What do you currently believe about this? I know your beliefs have shifted many times, but what do you currently believe? Is it just lights out when we die, or do we go on? Uh, Kevin, thanks for asking that. It's a question I get asked quite frequently, but I don't think we've done on the show in a while. I have no idea what happens when we die, and I am not particularly concerned about it. (laughs) I have enough On my mind, going through this life, the actions I take are not for eternal reward later, but because I believe it's the right way to live now. I don't know anyone who has died and can tell me about it. Um, Now someone say, what about Jesus? Jesus was dead for three days. Okay, that's great. Um my Jesus experiences are decidedly mystical in nature and probably not a great place for me to make a fact claim about a universal human experience. So maybe there's a heaven that we consciously go to and are in the presence of a conscious being like God. I think that'd be amazing. (laughs) Maybe the, the ending is more mystical or, you know, involves a a union. I have no idea. Which means I also don't know what I think about an immaterial soul. I have no idea. I've I've seen absolutely no science which speaks to an immaterial soul, at least not convincingly. Uh, So in general, I'm just not an afterlife faith kind of a person. My belief in Christ is about this life and the here 
and now, not the next life and some, you know, cosmic reward. Last question comes from Christine. I hope an After Dark question can make it onto the podcast. What the heck is the deal with crying after sex? I don't normally do this, though I have once or twice in the past during times of stress in my life. Recently, I experienced a personal loss, and the amount of crying after sex has dramatically increased. Is this some type of flight or fight response? Hormones. My poor husband would appreciate knowing it is not him, it's me. Thanks, Mike. Christine. Okay, um, off the top of my head, if I remember correctly, like half of women have experienced uh, crying after sex. It can come a couple of ways. There's no single answer. One, during orgasm and during sexual contact, uh, you get a lot of oxytocin that can cause tears of joy. That does not sound like what's happening to you. It sounds like you're having uh, a little bit more of a, a um, sadness or feeling down after sex. And uh, it's not flight or fight. There's a release that happens during orgasm and during sexual contact. And uh, there are feelings that you maybe have... Um, not fully processed and the intensity of a sexual experience brings them to the surface. There's nothing wrong with it. If you find it especially unpleasant, um, talking to a therapist could help a lot. Um, but I think how we contextualize and react to our experiences defines a lot of the suffering. So maybe that's a good time, um, for some cuddling and some closeness and some reassurance. And, um, that, that doesn't, it doesn't have to be like an indictment on the sexual experience. It's not a judgment on anyone. Uh, it's just a time for some intimacy and, uh, there's nothing wrong with it at all. It's not unhealthy. It's not uncommon. It is more common in women than in men, but it's not unheard of in men either. Uh, it, it troubles me. I think in our culture, in our comedy, we make a lot of jokes about crying after sex. And uh, on, on the one level, I get it. That's processing. Uh, it gives us some distance. That's fine. But on the other hand, it can alienate people who are having the experience. So it's not unhealthy. There's nothing wrong with you. doesn't mean you have a bad relationship with your husband. Uh, it simply means that your brain has gone through a very intense experience through sex. And uh, that is bringing to the surface other feelings and emotions as a result and it's totally normal and totally healthy and there's nothing wrong with you christine or with your husband next week we'll do hopefully an upload of the sermon i do at good sam if it's any good uh, and then i might i might go quiet here for a couple of weeks while we unpack boxes in california thanks for listening everybody thanks uh, andrew for your pre-production work on our science mike thank greg nordine for producing and sound designing, especially on really long episodes like this one. And Jeb, thanks for the theme song, buddy. Everybody, I'll talk to you soon.